0: And that's it. That's all I'm going to try and do. I'm not going to take on the world. You have so many things that you're trying to accomplish. You don't actually accomplish any of them.
1: It's a privilege to take care of them. It's just doesn't feel like a privilege when you got so many of them coming at one time.
2: Those are the voices of today's guests, doctors Chris Hicks and Tom Mayer. And you are listening to The Stimulus Podcast. Hello, my friends. Rob Orman here. How you doing? Hope you're well. For those of you new to stimulus, I am a former emergency physician and now physician coach, helping docs get unstuck, unburnt, and thrive in what can be a really hard job. And what we do right here is break down ideas, strategies, tactics, habits, mindsets, and logistics for you to live and work with intent. Now, we're so good at sucking it up, but that is not always the best strategy. Sometimes, you got to think a little differently. And my goal is to help get you there. Today's episode for me is such a beautiful throwback. Over the past few weeks, I went through my entire back catalog of everything, 14 years worth of podcasts, and I found a few just incredible gems that kind of got lost to history. And what I'm going to do today is interweave two of my Favorite interconnected conversations on getting things done when deep in overwhelm and chaos, and also having a positive mindset about it that helps with forward momentum. Let's see how we do with that. Sounds like a tall order. Yeah, we've touched on these themes many times, but these are the OGs. And just as a bit of backstory, at the time of these recordings, I was just over a decade into my clinical career and I was struggling. That's the only way I can describe it. I was struggling on so Many levels on volume on pace, chaos, organization, getting my documentation done. I used to stay four hours after my shift until I figured things out i'm just telling you, and I kind of hated going to work i didn't want to hate it. I loved the medicine, but the rest of it all everything else was just so much, it was too much and I recorded with both of these guests because to be frank, I was looking for answers for myself and I hadn't realized it then, but now going back and listening, these two episodes set the course for much of the work I do now. I think you'll see what I mean when you hear them. And let's change course a few degrees before we continue. And let me tell you about something super cool. Your job is hard. You got to know a lot of stuff. You got to be able to figure out a lot of things in a short period of time. And the job is also hard on you. And there's an entire aspect of training that doesn't address this. Things like navigating difficult conversations, creating the mindset you want, staying cool under pressure, regulating your nervous system, effectively dealing with stress. And for that matter, dealing with that inner perfectionist that can seem like such a pain in the butt. And that is just the tip of the iceberg of what we are covering at Awake and Aware. In person, Bend, Oregon, May 1st through 3rd this year, 2024. Awaken Aware is a CME event because that is an important thing to know. So join me, Ryan Chaney, Scott Weingart, and a cadre of physician coaches in person, Bend, Oregon, May 1st through 3rd. There's a link to the Awaken Aware website where you can take a look at the curriculum, who all the speakers are, all the good stuff in the show notes for this pod. And I'll finish with this. There is a better way. It doesn't have to be the same crap day after day. So we'll see you there at Awake and Aware. And I realized that rhymed. It wasn't intentional, but I'm keeping it in because it was kind of cool. All right, two guests on the show today. Our second guest who you'll hear about in about 15 minutes into the episode is Dr. Chris Hicks. He's an emergency physician. He is a trauma team leader at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. and Many of you know Chris. He is a legend in the human factors of medicine and trauma resource and communications and system optimization. A few years ago, he co-founded Advanced Performance Healthcare Design, which consults with hospitals and industry using simulation to inform the design of systems, spaces, and teams. I mean, that is so cool. We'll put Chris on a shelf for a moment because who you're about to hear is Dr. Tom Mayer. Tom is the medical director of the NFL Players Association, a medical director for the Studer Group, a clinical professor of emergency medicine at George Washington University, and senior lecturing fellow at Duke University. On September 11th, Dr. Mayer served as the command physician at the Pentagon Rescue Operation and has served on three defense science board task forces, advising the secretary of defense. And how I this interview with Tom is, I'll just say it, I kind of chased him down after <laughs> I heard him give a talk, probably the best speaker I've ever heard, and just brought out the mic and recorded this interview in a busy hallway. You're going to hear that in the background. You're going to hear a lot of background chatter, but that's how it rolls when you're reporting in the field. So let's get to it. The first half of this pod, a conversation with Dr. Tom Mayer, making order out of chaos. I want to start out with talking about the beginning of a shift. I have a friend who, when he begins a shift, he says a little prayer, something about how to take good care of patients, and then he kisses his hand and touches the top of the door, and he walks right in. And I think that helps him. But let's talk about how to start a shift, because you know it's going to be chaotic. You know that there's going to be interruptions and breaks in your activity very frequently. So how can you set yourself up for success right from the get-go?
1: Well, I think the first is, you know, to sort of pay attention over the course of your career so that you really do know what to expect at that given emergency department for that given shift when you walk in the door. And so the preparation should really start with reflection about what it's like to work there, what the most common problems are, what do you expect when you walk in the door. Start strong, big middle, finish strong. Because all of us have had the the feeling of kissing the hand, touching the door, and as Clausewitz says, the fog of war takes those plans apart pretty quickly. So I I think it's not just the discipline, but I think your friend would probably say a certain faith in I've got the skills, I'm gonna put my skills to work as best I can in the circumstances that I've got. So then you walk into your shift, you're motivated, you've
2: got the right mindset. There are six charts in the rack. There's two ambulances coming in and you know that patient number eight is going to be waiting a long time. It's going to be stressful for everybody. How can you organize that situation so that it's effective for the team, for yourself, for the nurses, for the patient, instead of just, oh my gosh, this is a catastrophe from the get-go?
1: The latter puts you in a position of negativity as soon as you start, of feeling like how in the world could those patients have been left standing, kind of blaming your, your partner for not having gotten that done, opposed to taking the positive proactive approach and saying, for example, okay, Let me at least knock out four of these really quick before these two ambulances get here. They walk you in the room and say, I'm sorry you had to wait. I apologize for that. I've just come on duty. I'm going to try to see you. I'm going to see you quickly now and a lot more detail later. But I want to get some stuff working on you right now to get started. So you may spend literally a couple of minutes with each of those four patients or six if you can happen to get to them prior to the ambulance getting in there. So the juggling aspect of getting those balls up in the air, you know, nothing like saying, I'm sorry, I apologize that you've had to wait. Doesn't mean you're responsible for them having to wait. When you say, I've just come onto this shift, helps them understand I'm the new guy on the block, if you will. But it's completely different than thinking, oh God, you know, I'm going to go wait for these ambulances, let them wait even longer. So a lot of it's just Being positive in the face of of a really the title of the talk organizing the chaos sort of says it all. It is chaos. In a situation like that, would you
2: start out with a huddle, get everybody together, say, "How are we going to do this?"
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Get them on the same page. Let's say we talk about if you walk in and there are three nurses down. You know, you can either complain about the three nurses being down to the charge nurse, or you can say, "Okay, this is where we are." I didn't use this quote, but Theodore Roosevelt Jr., Teddy Roosevelt's son, was actually on D Day a sixty two year old general who hit the beaches on Omaha beach and they landed him one mile away from where he was supposed to be. And instead of complaining, he said, no problem. We start the war from here. When you're getting hammered, you're in a situation that's
2: that's stressful. There can be a tennis, And I, I would I think that every emergency physician has done this at some point, probably more than once is counting down the hours, looking at that clock, six hours left. And it's not, oh boy, I got six hours of good stuff left. It's, oh, there's six hours left of this are there things that we can do internally like a thought exercise or ways that we can discipline our thinking
1: so that maybe we're not of that mindset my sons all mountain biked and when i first taught him to mountain bike i taught him that when you go up a hill you can't look up the hill because you're going to go oh god i can't make it you have to look right in front of the handlebars and just deal with the ground right in front of you the analogy for patience i think is just take care of the one in front of you don't worry about what's in your peripheral vision you know that's there you can see that there's uh wild and crazy stuff and take care of that one. That's why I say, I think organizing the chaos is a discipline, an ability to say, can't change what our specialty is like, but it can change how we view the specialty.
2: That's interesting to talk about looking at just the patient in front of you because you've got that patient and, you know, you can only take care of one patient at a time, yet you're looking at this chest pain patient. You've got two lacerations or so, an LP, a family conference to do. And one of the things that you bring up is, closing your energy packets. And we can address at least what that means. But also, how do you reconcile that? To ta- How do you reconcile taking care of one patient at a time when you know that there are all of these other unclosed
1: loops? Well, it's a great question. and And I think the way you end up closing all those loops is closing them one by one. And in the example you gave, probably one of the first things I would do is do the LP. It's a rate-limiting step. It's a bottleneck. It's a critical piece of information. And for most emergency physicians who've been out Five years or more. I wouldn't say they dread it, but they don't look forward to doing LPs. Or you know, somebody who's a couple years out. Oh, great! You know, another procedure. So if it is something that you're you you dread and put off, as I said in the talk, I like to get it done now because that closes that packer for me. I'm not it, I'm not thinking taking care of the other patients and thinking crap. I got to go take care of this LP. I get it done. Get it out of the way. The stress tolerance
2: level. There's all we've all got a point where we know that we're about to snap and. It's we think, okay, well, this is the point where it's my, my weakness. But you talk about turning it around and maybe making it a strength or recognizing what that is. What is that? What, how can that help you to know when it is that you're going to snap or when you're going to crack?
1: Right. And the, the stress tolerance level is understanding that up to a point, stress is good. It increases your performance. When you hit the stress tolerance level is when one more thing is going to make your performance go down instead of going up. Even knowing what your stress tolerance level turns a weakness into a strength because it helps you understand this is what's going on to me so that you sort of become the master of your fate and say, okay, I know the discipline of what I've got to do. Pause, reflect, reconsider because I'm about to lose it here if one more thing hits.
2: What is that when you say pause, reflect, reconsider. What is that? And then, you know, in the ED, you've got it coming from all directions. And That almost sounds like a brief meditation. I mean, how, how do you do that in that environment?
1: Oh, it is. It is a brief meditation. Probably familiar in other religious traditions, namaste. Well, namaste actually means I greet the God within you. And that probably is what we should say to every patient that we see. The fact is that, you know, it's a privilege to take care of them It just doesn't feel like a privilege when you got so many of them coming at one time. And taking that brief pause to recenter, to get a sense of gravity, to say, I can't change all this crazy stuff, but I can change how I react to that crazy stuff. Viktor Frankl, as you probably know, was a concentration camp survivor who became a noted psychotherapist. And he said that the most free he ever was was in the concentration camp. Totally counterintuitive. Because what he said was, I realized that I can never control what happens to me, but I can always control how I feel about it. It's a brilliant insight because we really can deal with how we feel about it. Not how many units are coming in or how many nurses we have or how many boarders, but how we're going to deal with it and how we're going to feel about the course of that shift.
2: There's certain things that we don't have control over and sometimes we feel like we're a victim of triage is killing us. The consultants are killing us, the patients are killing us, and in every way, the world is telling us no. I think when you start feeling like a victim, like you have no control, then your attitude and your efficiency and everything starts going down the tubes.
1: Oh, I think that's exactly true. That's exactly what Frankel was saying. As difficult as it is for much as emergency physicians, people aren't torturing us. I mean, it may feel like torture. People haven't designed this to torture us as as the camp was designed to do to him. But, I mean, there's real magic in that insight of saying, I'm going to take control of myself. I will say this. And there's a bunch of lectures, and, and Rob Strauss and Greg Henry and uh, Kirk Jensen give those lectures about how you change the system so that it's not day-to-day the same stuff. This lecture, as you know, is focused more on what we can do as individual emergency physicians to get through it. If over time, you know, it's so wild and crazy that we don't feel comfortable to, uh, taking care of patients, then we have to change our work environment. This is about how we change the work environment for ourselves.
2: One idea or one theory I think people have is that multitasking, that your ability to multitask is the master skill or is a master skill. But to your point, multitasking makes you stupid. It's hard for anybody to be effective when they multitask. I find 12 years or so after residency, it's harder. To multitask over time. What's your take on multitasking and what do you think is the master skill for organizing the chaos?
1: First of all, people we talk about multitasking as if it were a good thing and it's a bad thing. There's no exception to the rule that visually, your ability to process auditory input all goes down when you try to multitask. And there's no mantra, there's no meditation, there's no hypnosis that's going to change that. The question is how are we going to deal with that? We all, when we finish our training, come out thinking, you know, hey, we can juggle. I can do it all. Bring it on. I'll put a chest tube in and float a line over here and intubate them. And I think that the most important skill in multitasking is realizing that it's not a good thing. Doesn't mean it won't be done. Doesn't mean that the necessities and the vicissitudes of being an ER doc are any different. But just understanding that when you are multitasking, you're going to function less effectively. That's why I talk about closing energy packets. Getting that patient wrapped up or that part of the care of the patient wrapped up in a way that you then can put your energies in other places where they need to be. I thinking the pause, reflect, reconsider is an ability to say, step back and say, am I seeing the whole playing field? If I'm not, then I need to make time to be able to, to think about, you know, should I be converging on this diagnosis or should be, I be using divergent thinking to think of other diagnoses as well?
2: The reality of the emergency department is multitasking. There's there's multiple tasks, and e- and on a complex patient, there are just hundreds and hundreds of data points that we're trying to juggle, and that's multiplied over several patients. And then we have a break in task or a break in the direction that we're heading every three and a half minutes, a major break in task that changes our direction. I don't know that that's going to change, but are there ways that we can mitigate the effect of that or
1: or lessen the amount that that happens? A simple example of scribes. If I take the work that I have to do, doctoring, deciding, and documenting, and I take that piece of documenting, and, you know, the patient sees us in front of the computer, they think we're playing donkey tongue or day trading or, you know, checking the stock prices or something.
2: Say that you don't have scratch, you're still going to have that, the reality of the breaking task very frequently. And that's, I mean, I know that, you know, seven hours into a shift when I'm getting a phone call six times during a patient interaction, that's really a challenge. And I guess one way is, don't call me when I'm in with the patient. But what
1: other ways can we use to deal with that? One is having evidence-based protocols. And so that when someone comes in the door, we're not thinking, oh, trauma patient, what am I going to do? You would no more see a blunt trauma patient that had subcutaneous emphysema infec- over their chest wall and get a chest x-ray. You'd get written up on charges if you did that. And, you know, not only that, but all you have to do is turn to your right and the nurse has a 36 French chest tube ready for you to put in that patient. That's an evidence-based protocol, ATLS. ACLs, PALS. If you take that and say, you know what, I'm not going to call that cookbook medicine. I'm going to sit down with our group of 10, 12, 50, 80, however many physicians are in that group, and we're going to talk about it ahead of time. And so we talked in there, number one diag- or chief complaint, ICD-9 code is abdominal pain. Every emergency department in the country without exception. Why don't we talk about how we're going to work up abdominal pain so that I don't have to think about it when I come out of the room. I already know some respects before I go in the room where I'm thinking. So that task of doctoring, deciding, and documenting really becomes much easier because it's more clear-cut in how we're going to do it. I mean, if it was your family member on that stretcher with abdominal pain or if it was you, wouldn't you want a common way that the physicians are going to handle this problem? There's always vagaries and differences. So number one is, is coming to a sense of common ways we're going to handle things. Number two, Let's don't make decisions at 3 o'clock in the morning of a rainy night that we could have made at 3 o'clock in the afternoon of a a sunny day. Meaning, when it comes to issues like, are we going to get imaged? Are we going to have oral contrast for uh, abdominal CTs? Don't decide it in the middle of the night. Decide it ahead of time. and Decide it on evidence, not on the convenience of the radiologist or the opinion of the radiologist, but their own literature, which helps us understand that better. If we've got hospitalists prospectively letting them know No, you can't come down and evaluate patients in the emergency department. If you want to do that, we'll tell you about an hour or so before the workup is finally complete and you can come down. And if they say, I'm sending a whole bunch of people home that you've admitted to the hospital, show me. I'm from Missouri. I'm not from Missouri, but show me. Show me the data. Metaphorically speaking, from Missouri. Metaphorically speaking. Show me the patients. Show me the data that says that you discharged X number of patients within 24 hours of the time we put them in. And why that was a bad thing instead of a good thing. I think a lot of effective multitasking is not getting better at multitasking. It's removing the number of things we have to do to multitask and systematizing that. So it's not a surprise to anybody.
2: In some ways, it's more macro than micro. You're preemptively managing it.
1: Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, it's a crotchet of mine. I mean, I happen to have been a medical director literally in my entire career. I came out of residency and immediately got hired as a medical director. So it's something I thought about a lot. This isn't for the medical director to do or the assistant medical director. I really believe that emergency physicians should go to work not only ready for the work that they have to do, but ready to think about how to make that work easier for themselves, for their patients, and for the nurses that they work with, for the medical staff that they work with. If I call a surgeon and I say, well, I got this guy and he's got pain and I don't know, and first he went to high school and then he went to college and he had this bad marriage, the surgeon wants to know what to do. I got a guy with appendicitis. You need to come cut on. All the st- antibiotics are already on board. You know, I gave him flagel and cephalogorillazoline or something like that. Come down here and let's get him lapped and get him done. Doc, one time called me in the middle of the night. He was mad now. in hell. I said, What happened? He said, Well, I was talking to the surgeon. I said, Well, so what? He wouldn't come in? He goes, No. I said, Well, what happened? He said, He fell asleep on me. Well, I said, John, you're boring. You know, and he was—he gave these long, drawn-out histories. You—you you wouldn't think you'd have to teach people how to talk to other doctors, but a lot of times we have to do. It. And in effect, that's an evidence-based approach. It's not in the literature, but it's just look. Here's what works. Here's what doesn't. Simple example. I got somebody who's uh, a year out of his residency. He's coming to work with our emergency department, and and I notice that when he calls the surgeon on the line, he says, "Dr. Smith, this is Bill in the emergency department." well, that's not a level playing field. He can be Bill and I can be Tom, or he can be Dr. Smith and I'm Dr. Mayor, but we're going to play, we're going to have the same level of respect for each other, if you will. Because if I'm Bill and he's Dr. Smith, he's going to probably feel less compelled to do what I'm asking him to do in the first place because the playing field just isn't the same. All right. Thanks a lot, Tom. Sure thing. Good talking to you.
2: I wanna introduce you to a special tool that I've developed over the years working with physician clients. It's called the Driveway Debrief, and it's now available for free to you. What's this all about? Well, you are accustomed to high-intensity workdays, our understatement of the year, where your brain is continually on. You're juggling hundreds of tasks and probably thousands of decisions. And shifting from this work mode to home mode, isn't easy. And as a result, you might find yourself disengaged or not fully present with loved ones. It's hard to walk in the door and just be there. Or maybe you're unwinding with hours of TV because your mind just can't settle down. The driveway debrief addresses this. It's a 10 minute guided exercise aimed at dialing down your sympathetic nervous system processing the day and creating a clear boundary between your work life and your home life. This tool has been a game changer for my clients and I think you'll find it useful as well. There is a link to the Driveway Debrief in the show notes for this episode. You can also find it on our free resources page alongside our other tools. And I set up the Driveway Debrief so it's accessible in your podcast app. Oh yeah, so you don't have to go hunting for it when you wanna use it. Leave work at work and shed the residue of the day. Check it out, driveway debrief. Let me know how it goes. All right, before we get into our conversation with Chris Hicks and how he approaches making order out of chaos, there's a few things that Tom talked about that I just want to highlight because they went by kind of fast. The first was a quote from General Teddy Roosevelt Jr. We'll start the war from here. If ever there was an example of choosing mindset, of pure stoicism, of embracing what's in your control and letting go of the rest. That's it. And I'm going to link to a story about that quote in the show notes. And it just so beautifully highlights that attitude is a choice. It might not feel like it's a choice, especially when you're on your seventh day in a row and you feel like a salty dog and the smallest thing can be such a bother, but it is. It's just harder when you're depleted, harder when you're overwhelmed. And it puts a concentrated spotlight on the question of how do you want to begin that day? Because how you walk in that door, that's fully in your control. Once, once you walk in the door, then much of it isn't. But that moment absolutely is. And the other thing I wanted to touch on that was easy to miss is the idea of energy packets. That is a term that describes something that's open-ended and is taking your attention and energy. It's kind of like a little energy vampire. So, you know, you've got an open-ended case. You need to do a procedure, you need to call an admission, you need to review an x-ray, you need to discuss something with your patient. All of those things are open-ended and take energy. And unless you have just a preternatural ability to be completely mindful of exactly what you're doing all of the time, some of your energy is going to be at least partly attending to those other tasks. So if you can focus on closing one energy packet at a time, one loop at a time or whatever name you want to give it, it's going to make you more efficient. It's going to lead to more shift endurance and it's going to allow you to focus your work much better. You know that time, you know, just, you got 10 new patients, you're spinning your wheels, it's just too much to do. What are the energy packets I need to close? And charts are a real silent killer energy packet. Getting documentation done in real time frees up so much mental energy because even suddenly you might be anticipating the massive documentation bolus at the end of shift or taking that stack of charts home. Think, oh, I can just kind of backload it on the end of the day. But that also is a little energy vampire. That is an open-ended energy packet. And there are myriad approaches to closing energy packets some go bottom up as tom was talking about you know looking for the quickest procedure the thing where you're the rate limiting step the lowest hanging fruit and some will go top down closing the loop on the most complex thing first all right here we go with our second order out of chaos expert trauma team leader and human factors maestro dr chris hicks what stresses you out in a shift? Not a, not. a Let's not talk about a trauma call shift, but just a regular shift. What stresses you out about it, and what do you do to mitigate it?
0: I still get stressed out by getting slammed with volume. That still bugs me, in particular because it's one of those things that's so far beyond your control often, when patients just keep coming in and coming in, uh, and you're getting farther and farther behind. You know, the really sick patient, the crashing patient, the arrest patient... They don't stress me out anymore, or at least not as much as they used to, because there's a locus of control there. And when you talk about stress management and stress preparation, that's a really important thing to have some sort of sense of an internal locus of control. You don't have that with volume, right? When patients come through the door, they come through the door and they're going to keep coming through no matter where your locus is. So for me, the more valuable thing in that circumstances is notion of cognitive reframing. Cognitive reframing. Yeah, though, uh, this is... And this is a technique for stress preparation that it's talked about in the context of preparing for something like a resuscitation, but where I use it the most is actually on a really busy shift. And it's the idea that, okay, so you're a basketball team and you're down 12 points in the fourth quarter. And you can see teams like that sometimes completely fall apart, right? They can't pass the ball. They can't make plays. They look like a disaster on the defensive end. And it takes the coach or a veteran on the team or somebody to call a timeout and call the team to the sidelines and say, hey guys, look, here's what we need. We need to stop on the defensive end. That's our next step. That's what we need to achieve. After we do that, then we'll talk about everything else that needs to happen. And you watch a team fall apart because they, talk, they start thinking about their defense and their offense and that guy on the other team is really hot right now and I can't defend him. And all of the 10 or 15 or 20 things that need to happen all at once, And they can't put them in order. They can't sequence them and they don't have the cognitive capacity to to manage it and things fall apart. So a really busy shift for me is the same sort of thing. It's okay in the next 15, 20 minutes or in the next hour. What are the things that I have to achieve? The things that I need to achieve the tasks that realistically I could get done so that I can move forward in the middle of the shift that looks like pauses or checkpoints where I say, I am going to stop at time X. I don't care what else is happening unless it's a recess. I'm going to stop and reevaluate and reassess and go back. I'm not going to move forward. I'm going to stop and I'm going to identify the three or four things or sometimes the 20 things that I really need to get done. And then I'm not going to move on until I do them. Let's get a, a specific example of that. So
2: one of the tensions that we run into is there are always new people coming in. They need attention. And the patients that you are working up, they have, as Tom Mayer says, they have energy packets that need to be closed. They have procedures that need to be done. They need to get admitted. So, you've got those two streams. You've got the patients that are there that are getting worked up and each one of those needs multiple, you could say, touches or they need multiple points of contact or they need multiple actions and then you've got the patients that are coming in as well. So, what would that look like? So, let's say you've got a laceration needs to be sewn. It's going to be a 30-minute repair. It's complex. You don't have anyone else to do it for you. You've got a fracture to reduce. You've got a patient to call up for an admission. And you've got two patients who have just come in, a chest pain
0: and a kid with fever. Go. Dude, it's starting to sound like an oral exam question. I, don't, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> um, I agree with you. First of all, conceptually, I, the phrase that I use for patients in their trajectory is they have orbits. You take a patient that you first see for the first time, you do your history physical, you order some tests maybe, and then you punt them up into orbit and they go up into the stratosphere and they orbit for a period of time. And the sweet spot in emergency medicine is understanding where you need to be to catch that patient when they come back down. You come back too late, the patient hits the ground. You come back too early and they're not ready to come out of orbit yet. So, part of it in terms of reassessment is finding that sweet spot where you just know just from experience and time and practice, that patient is going to take X amount of time in their particular orbit before you need to run out and try and catch them. So, that's part of it. For the patients that you just talked about, let's say that's the start of the shift. I tend to want to at least peek at the new patients before I delve into a procedure. So if you had a chest pain and a fever in a young kid, I'd want to have a look at the kid's chart in particular, get a sense of how old they are, maybe briefly glance at their vitals. If I can, eyeball the kid and eyeball the patient at the bedside. And I'd do the same for the chest pain patient and look at the ECG and maybe get a little bit of information off of the nursing chart and make a decision about whether these are things I need to dive into right now or not. The other thing that I'm fond of doing, this kind of dovetails into the trauma role, even if you're not on a trauma team leader job at our hospital, our emergency docs are very involved in trauma and you get pulled into the trauma room for a good chunk of time if you're just working major. So let's say that chest pain patient was there and then a trauma rolled in or I knew a trauma was coming in. I might look at that chart really quickly and try and make a bunch of decisions then that I knew I was going to make anyway. If it's a patient that had a really suspicious cardiac history, I would make sure that Cardiac enzymes had been sent even before seeing them. If I thought there was a reason for a chest x-ray, I'd order it. I get a lot of those things done before I disappeared into the trauma room for an hour, just so that they're going to get done anyway. I try and be decisive in the sorts of decisions that I know I'm going to make anyway and not put them off to a later time. Okay. But now you're talking about the procedures and the sort of chores. And
2: yes, and I want to get back to you'll set a time where there's a pause and nothing else happens beyond point X and pull
0: that into this. Setting a pause. On a really busy shift, like you said, five patients, but I don't know. It might be a shift where you have 20 patients to see very, it would be very common for me to spend the first several hours. I don't know, two, three hours just seeing patients and ordering tests or sending patients home or whatever it happens to be. The problem is that becomes pretty difficult to pause that process once it gets started. So you start to move on and on and seeing patients and. Rather than getting the information you're looking for back in discrete chunks when you're ready to make a decision when that patient's coming down out of their orbit, what starts to happen, and again, anyone who does emergency medicine knows this, is little bits of information start getting shoved your way. Somebody will say the CBC is back, or maybe you'll go look at the x-ray, and the x-ray will be normal, but it's hard to put that into context because you don't have the rest of the data. And you start to get these little dribs and drabs of information that you're trying to process for multiple patients at multiple points in time. And it becomes very hard to actually direct any significant amount of thought to any one task or process. So if you don't pause, the information is going to come at you anyway. But it's a really shitty way to process information because you're getting little bits of information, little drops at a time. And as much as we like to think that we can multitask and process bits of information at the same time, we can't. There's decay in data quality every time we have to shift our attention from one thing to another. We're gonna lose a little bits of data. We're gonna lose a little bit of cognitive processing power every time we do that. So for me, the sweet spot is working and working at the start of a shift when I'm busy and then saying I'm gonna stop at a time when I know that the majority of the data that I need is going to be back. I'm gonna analyze the decisions I need to make at that point and then I'm gonna make the decisions. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna leave them behind. I'm not gonna say, I don't know, ECG is fine, but I'm gonna maybe sit on it for what a little bit longer and be indecisive. I'll make decisions that I can make at that point and then move on. And I think that's really important because it it, it allows you to look at decisions in kind of their totality. You've seen the patient, you've had some time with them, you've had a period of observation maybe if you think that's relevant, and now you've got all the data you want back. All of your labs are back, your x-rays are back, all of those things are back, your response to treatment can be documented, that sort of thing. So for me, that's a much more logical process to build in those pauses and I'll let our team know that too. In fact, I don't and I don't do these pauses alone. Very often I'll pause and I'll get together with our nursing team and say, okay, where are we at? And who's waiting for this? And it's often the time that you notice that, that cat skin hasn't been done. Why isn't the cat skin been done? Oh crap, the requisition actually didn't make it up to CT. And you pick up on those things as well, rather than 30 minutes before the end of your shift. So that's the idea of a checkpoint or a, a rally point or whatever you want to call it. The cognitive reframing comes in. For me, probably most effectively towards the end of a shift so now i've been slammed for seven straight hours i've made an effort to keep up but i'm not and there's just more and more patients rolling in for me early in my career this was a this was a solid recipe for burnout because i believe that i should be keeping up better that i should be able to hand over a pristine department and i just thought that i was lousy at my job and maybe i am i don't know i just don't think i'm lousy for that particular reason. What? helps or what helps me in that situation is understanding not that I have to do everything before my shift is over, because I can, but what can I reasonably achieve in the next hour so that when my shift ends and it's time for me to sign off to the next dock, I can sign off safely and not pass over a huge mess of things uh, that the person after me has to inherit. And that I'm not going to be there, frankly, for three hours after my shift either, because you got to consider that work work life balance. You- I know people that hang around for hours after their shift. I I don't know how they do it. At a certain point, you need to check out, both physically and mentally, check out of work and go home. So for me, being very deliberate in that process, this is this concept of cognitive reframing to say, these. this is the same idea as saying, we need to stop on the defensive end before we move on. There's four or five things that I can get done. Maybe I can reassess these three patients. I might be able to see two new patients and I might be selective at that point about which two patients those are. And that's it. And barring a resuscitation, that's all I'm going to try and do. I'm not going to take on the world. And it's amazing how we talked about that internal locus of control. Once you try and very deliberately bite off a chunk of work that you can manage, when you're overwhelmed, I don't know about you, when I'm overwhelmed, I take a nap (laughs) because I can't. Like When there's too much stuff to do, you just can't take it all on. You don't even know where to start. I just go lie down for a few hours because screw it and I just give up on the world. And that happens on shift too, right? You have so many things that you're trying to accomplish, you don't actually accomplish any of them. Whereas reframing the issue to say, these are the things that I really need to or want to or feel that I could accomplish in the last two hours of my shift makes it much more easier for you then to actually go out and do those things.
2: How do you start your shift? Do you have any rituals or do you do the same thing every time? Or is there some kind of
0: mental preparation before you Walk in the door. I'm quite ritualistic about it. I more often than not either run or bike to work. What that means is I generally speaking get there about 20 or 30 minutes before my shift starts. And maybe this is dipping over into overly personal information, but I have to shower and I have to get ready. Generally speaking, go and get a coffee. Mentally and physically, I feel like I'm centered, like I'm, like my feet are planted. I don't know. I know people do this where they show up a minute after their shift starts and they come crashing into the department and throw all their stuff down and say, I'm really sorry all right let's get going i don't know how they do that because for me i'm never and that happens to me sometimes but when it does happen i feel so less prepared for sitting down and taking in new information and starting the work than if i have a, some time to to breathe so to speak any other ritual that I, I try and go through is once i get into the department and usually i've got my coffee in my hand and i'm relaxed and ready I'll have a look at who I'm working with. I'll, we have that posted under our department. So I'll see who's around and I get a good or sometimes bad feeling about who it is that I'm working with. So I have a sense of what my resources are. And then I look at our board too. Before we sign over, I generally speaking, take a look at our board and have a look at how many people are waiting, a sense of what the shift is going to be like. Because again, even some of that preparatory information, knowing that it's going to be a busy shift and I guess just accepting that there is a little bit of Zen to that phrase, but just accepting that it, you're either going to have a busy shift or you're not puts me in a better headspace when I sit down with the person to take sign over rather than something that's argumentative or you're going to have a, a bad interaction with the person you're taking sign over from because maybe it's busier than you think it ought to be. When in reality, <laughs> so, the person-
2: Oh, so common. So common that that, that sign over stink eye.
0: I'm sure the vast majority of time, the person you're sitting down with has done their absolute best as well.
2: Yes, of course they have. It's so easy to have the perspective of everybody else in the universe is not pulling their weight. And it even goes across medical specialties where invariably everywhere that I've ever worked, the same weird dynamics happen. Oh, these ER docs just want to admit everybody. And all the radiologists always hedge. And they're just people. And if we're in their position, reading X-rays and CTs, we would say the exact same mm-hmm. thing. And then we have a, one of our hospitalists works in the ED as well. He's multiple board certified, and you know what? he's like, "Yeah, I know, I feel bad about admitting these people, but they can't go home." And then when he's on the other side, he's actually very gracious. Yeah, I just send him in since he he knows both of it. So yeah, it's always the look askance of, "Oh, you're signing that out mm-hmm. to me," or "I'm signing this out to you," and you're looking askance at me. And it's I guess the message is, "Don't sign it." <laughs>
0: It's also helpful to be honest, too, right? We've all mailed in a shift or two. Absolutely, we have. I'm not above that. Emerge is particularly bad, I think. I know we get knocked around as a specialty. We take our fair number of shots at other specialties as well, right? Sometimes I wonder how productive that is. Uh, we talk about the surgeon being an idiot, not understanding the patient needs an operation, or um, the radiologist hedging their report, or whatever it happens to be.
2: We do that all the Time. I think,
0: yeah. Walk a mile in somebody's shoes, right? I think that's the message there.
2: You've got a major trauma coming in. And it's someone who's alive. It's not a traumatic cardiac arrest, or you've got a major sick medical patient coming in. The traumas seem to be stress people out a little more, I find. So let's just talk about that. Major traumas coming in. What's your internal dialogue before that patient comes in? And what is your internal dialogue as the recess starts?
0: Very often when I walk into the trauma room, in particular if I don't know what it is I'm walking into. There's a little checklist that goes through my head of the things that frighten me that I might have to do in the next five minutes. And I do a little bit of a mental warm up on those things. So the trauma room being the trauma room, those things are something like a surgical airway or an ET thoracotomy or a challenging airway or a failed airway. I will one, acknowledge that there's a real possibility that I might have to engage in those things in the next few minutes. Again, with no other information available to me, that anything is on the table, and then to walk through a little checklist in my head of logistics of where things are, of do I am I sure where the stuff that I need or that I think I might need is, and a mental warm up exercise of actually going through the steps of say an E D thoracotomy in my head before it actually happens, even just the notion of acknowledging to yourself that there are things out there that still make you nervous. I think is important and it makes the unknown a little bit more known that is to say anything can come through that door in five minutes but what really freaks me out what really scares me let me warm up my brain for that and everything else i know i can already handle
2: picture yourself as obi-wan kenobi you are obi-wan kenobi for all of your residents but there is one resident who is your padawan who is the person that you will train to run the perfect recess, you're going to do all sorts of learning about diseases and actions to take. But what you really want to focus on is their stress inoculation, their situational awareness, so that they can walk through managing those sick patients with equanimity. What are the three main things that you would teach them or the processes you would want them to go through so that they could gain that?
0: For stress preparation, I think the two that seem to be most consistently important or found to be important in terms of managing one's acute stress response, we've alluded to already, one is the notion of mental practice or mental warm-up, not just the process I described, going through it in your own head, but talking it through with your team. And that dovetails into the other sort of really relevant concept here of preparatory information or having some sense of what's coming and how you might anticipate managing it.
2: So, talking it through with your team, the mental and verbal preparation. At the moment, you're talking about in the arena, talk it through with your team, talk it through with yourself. You've got somebody who's come in, they've got shot to the chest, okay? Here's what we can expect. We can expect that they may need to have a chest tube and a thoracotomy. We're going to be looking at their heart. We may need to deliver the heart through the pericardium. might need to control the airway. Here are the things we need to set up. So, let's just know that's going to
0: happen. Something like that. That's exactly right. Except to say that I think people might say, well, hey, we kind of do that already or I I do that with my team. But I think what we do the first part of that pretty well, that is to say we talk about getting the level one set up and getting IV access equipment out and we kind of work through the logistics pretty well. But playing the game of understanding what it is you think you're likely to see, and I think this is really important, understanding what your first steps are and what your contingencies are. A great example of that is, okay, we heard this patient's got a a facial injury, a bad facial smash. We can anticipate they're going to need an airway. What's our primary going to be? What if that doesn't work? What's our secondary? We do that or we should do that all the time with airway management. And it's there's a reason for that. It's because then if one fails, we know what we're going to next. And the process is less stressful and less chaotic when we engage in that discussion ahead of time.
2: Okay, so that's mental rehearsing even out loud, getting everybody on board. What's next?
0: Second is this notion of tactical or controlled breathing, the idea being that breathing is one of the few autonomic processes that you have some control over. And there's evidence out there to suggest that taking some control of your breathing has an impact on a lot of other autonomic processes like your heart rate, your blood pressure, your stress level, your serum cortisol levels, and so on. So tactical breathing is just a a fancy phrase and you've probably heard it thrown around a bit already. It's whatever sort of controlled breathing you find most useful. The important thing I think for me is it gives you a really interesting visual to focus on. This is this is meditative practice, right? Anytime I do that, I see that triangle in my head and I focus on that for a couple of seconds and it clears my head and then I could get back to the other stuff. It's probably very personal. It probably depends on who you are and what you find most helpful. So we've got mental rehearsal
2: and I guess you could even put in simulation practice in there in that kind of the stress inoculation and just getting familiar and not having such an adrenergic surge when this comes in because you're used to it the patterns there's tactical breathing
0: what's the third the third is cognitive reframing which we've touched on already there are a few different parts to it one is talking yourself through the specifics of a given process for chest tube insertion you're talking yourself through micro steps in a procedure rather than having to try and see the procedure from start to finish which can be overwhelming there's reinforcing positive talk which this is the i'm good enough i'm smart enough side of the discussion but it it has impact to say i've done this before i've been here before i can handle this i can do this or actually probably more pertinently we can do this because it's important to remember you're not doing this alone and then the notion of reframing priorities in a way that seems much more manageable to get that central or internal locus of control this is a discussion that you don't have internally but you have with your broom to say okay, everybody, here's the situation as I see it. Here are the five or six things that I think are going on with this patient. But here are the two things that we're going to focus on in the next five minutes. And this is what we need to accomplish. And then you turn to the room and seek input from team members, which I think is hugely important to say, what am I missing? What am I overlooking?
2: I put those on the dry erase board in the trauma room. Say, okay, here's what we know so far. Here's the most important actions to take. that We need to manage these before we go to step two just so that everyone can see it. And, but most importantly, so that I can see it because it just feels like such a commish of a bunch of different things to take care of, but say, wow, there it is just, I guess I framed it. I framed it in a way that makes sense to me. Just like we frame a story. Somebody comes in with chest pain and it's a very thing to say, how we talk about it. Ah, here's a 55 year old man who was exerting himself and had chest pain with exertion A radius down his left arm. It's a story we understand. You frame it in a way that you understand it. And for me, writing it down or writing it on the board, that for me, reframes it and helps me prioritize. And sometimes the thing I write number eight, oh, it's like, whoa, that actually should be number one, even though it was the last in the list. So here we go.
0: I think that's great. And I think it accomplishes whether you write it or just talk about it. I think it accomplishes a couple of important tasks. One, as you said, just going through the exercise, maybe helps you solidify priorities in your own head. Two, you're not just managing your own priorities and your own stress response, but you're managing those responses for your entire team. Or at least you're not managing them, but you have to be cognizant of all of those things. And I think this is a very powerful thing. When I see teams that are falling apart or not functioning well, very often it's because you've made the assumption as team leader that their priorities are the same as your priorities. And so often they're not, or at least you very you don't know that until you set the priorities or you ask people or you tell them what you think the priorities ought to be. What you often hear back is people didn't necessarily see the situation as you did. They thought we were going to do A before B and not the other way around. They get on the same page with you and this is this concept of a shared mental model that they now understand the process the way you understand the process or at least they're beginning to see it the way you see it. And sometimes very importantly, they've seen something that you haven't or they have something to tell you that you didn't pick up on. Great example of that was a trauma resuscitation we had just last week where I don't know why. Actually, I think I do know why. Patient needed a chest tube on the right and they needed central axis. And I'm, I usually go above the diaphragm for central axis in a patient like that. And I didn't because there was a body on the patient's right-hand side. So for whatever reason, we chose a femoral central line, which is uncommon for me. But in my head, that didn't click in until somebody said, do you think we should put a central line above the diaphragm as well? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And we ended up doing that not in the trauma room, but in the OR. And that was pretty significant because that patient had a retrohepatic IVC injury, which is the exact circumstance where you don't want a femoral central line because basically everything we were putting into that patient was coming out into their belly. So it's important for that process to be two-way. Even something as simple as this patient is in shock and I believe it to be hemorrhagic shock. Sometimes that's all it takes to snap people into a to a state of clearer focus. But it's also important to pay attention to the time when somebody says, "But have you seen the ultrasound of the heart yet? Do we know that this isn't tamponade?" Your
2: padawan is there
0: doing the recess. And, and I'm sorry, people who are not Star
2: Wars fans. I know, you know there's probably mm-hmm. about 8,000 people who are listening saying, what on earth are they talk? But you know what? Padawan is a young learner and approach in the path to mastery. So let's just say that. Mm-hmm. What are you going to say? What's your scripting for? That's, that's a Padawan, right? So, so yeah, what's your scripting yeah, Say, yeah, you All it. right, Padawan, here's how I want you to answer that. Hey, what's going on in the heart? And that, And not in a way that somebody says... Oh, hey, maybe we should think about the heart. Has anyone looked at the heart? Hey, why haven't you looked at the heart? Somebody, It's like in a very accusatory way. How does the Padawan answer that in a respectful way? How do they control the room? How do they keep things moving?
0: The first point to that is is shut down your own ego. That person may have a point. Maybe you haven't and maybe you need to. So, in some circumstances, it might be appropriate to say, yeah, we really need to do that. We need to finish this one task and then that'll be next. Or you're right, let's shift priorities. Or Cliff Reed always talks about giving annoying people things to do. Say, are you comfortable doing a cardiac ultrasound? Because that would be a helpful bit of information. Could you please take that on next? The hardest situation is when what they're bringing up is extraneous or it's not a priority or you feel it could be you know, downgraded in terms of importance. I still think it's worth giving that person a very brief explanation of why you are choosing not to do what it is they suggest. A better example might be, why are we going to the OR with this patient? Maybe we should just take them to CT first, something like that. I still think that team member is owed at least a brief explanation of why it is you feel that their management plan is inaccurate. They're going to have to live with the outcome of the case just like you are, maybe not from the perspective of the team leader, but they're asking that question for a reason. And as we talked about before, it's important to shut down your ego in that process and listen because maybe they have a point. But if you believe them to be wrong, I think you still need to say, In this situation, I think this patient is just a little bit too unstable. I think the CT scanner is probably not the best option here and we need to do something else. A process of both acknowledging what the person is saying as being important, but also explaining your thought process. And the reason I think that's important is because if you can't really explain your thought process, you might need to rethink your thought process. Sometimes when somebody brings something like that up and I could start to go through the process of trying to just briefly discuss with that person why I'm doing what I'm doing, I realize that I don't always know why it is I'm doing what I'm doing. And I think that's important to acknowledge. And it may actually provoke you to change your course on something. I mean, a lot of this sounds wishy-washy. I don't want to sound, I don't want to make it sound synonymous with not being decisive. Because if you made a decision as a team leader and your knowledge and experience and your understanding and your oodle loop has told you to do a particular thing, it's important to stick with that. And I'm not suggesting otherwise. You need to be cognizant of where other bits of data are going to come in and make sure that the discussion is about patient care and not ego.
2: And that is it for today. And you know what? If you love medicine, but you find the job itself leaves a lot to be desired, I work with docs in your shoes who feel the same way and help them extend their careers and have fun doing it. Can you imagine driving to your next shift with a feeling of stoke and excitement? And then when you leave for the day, you think to yourself, hey, that was pretty damn great. We can help get you there you can reach out to me at roborman.com. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking. There you go.